I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 119. Y'all, Carrie had a sinister sightings this weekend. Her parents and Colby's parents met this weekend for the first time. Oh, it wasn't sinister. No, it wasn't. It was a lovely. It was absolutely lovely. So crazy. I had never even introduced a boy to my parents, much less parents meeting parents. Yeah. I've only introduced one boy to my parents. And my mom, because she's me and can't keep her mouth shut, he was super tall. He was like 6'5". I don't know. I know. Get out of your pond. I know. But my brother-in-law at the time, he was also super tall. And my mom was in the middle. And she was like, look at my two son-in-laws. Super (laughs) tall. And I was like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. Nope. Mm -mm. Nope. (laughs) She was like, (laughs) no. Mm -mm. (laughs) I can just hear you. Mama! (laughs) Yeah, I was like, no. (laughs) Like... (laughs) She said, I just mean they're tall. Uh, you've you called them both son-in-laws, and it's never going to happen. <laughs> Other than that, we've been pretty fucking boring. Still listening to the same podcasts. I did get rid of cable. Oh, yeah, she cut the cord. Completely. I only have internet now. And Donna's Netflix, and Donna's Disney Plus, <laughs> and Colby's Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> This bitch. <laughs> That's true friendship right there. But on my Fire Stick, I have IMDb TV free. Obviously, like it has like a couple little commercials. And they have all the murder she wrote. And I have been <laughs> watching all the murder she wrote when I go to sleep at night. Colby must love that. Well, sorry about you. <laughs> well, it was that in Forensic Files, so. Right. He put it on Supernatural the other night, though. I was like, Way better. Oh, you know it's way better than all of this? What? Patreon. Oh. Patreoners. Oh, I hadn't sang it like that in a long time. It was that ice cream we had. True. Uh, So, thank you so much, Kelsey K. from New Jersey. Do you work in radio? Because that would be an amazing radio name. Kelsey K? <gasps> it would. Mm-hmm. Where's she from? New Jersey. Kelsey K coming straight to you from New Jersey. Okay, you should never work in radio. <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all. I'm Kelsey K. We're up all night. <laughs> Delilah. <laughs> With a little bit of, hey, you cool cats and kittens. <laughs> Carol Baskin. <laughs> oh, good. oh, God. Kirby M. from Perth, Western Australia. Sandra R. from California. I see you're Sandra R. And raise you Sandra P. from Gothenburg, Sweden. Mindy from Wisconsin. And Kate J. from Virginia. Thank y'all so much for being part of Patreon. We hope that you are catching up on all the bonus content that you get now. And if you want the bonus content or... To introduce the Sinister Sightings, or any of that good good, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Okay, so for my story this week, I guess I should give a trigger warning because it does involve kids, and honestly, it's kind of a big fear of mine because it involves a home invasion. 
Oh, shit. Yes. I watched this amazing documentary on HBO about it, and it was called The Cheshire Murders. There were two articles that I was like, oh, my God, these are so freaking awesome. One was by the True Crime Times by Julie Fiddler, and then there was this blog called Talk Murder With Me by this girl named Natalie that was really cool, too. And you know what? I loved on her little thing. It said... Like, to donate money to her. Like, she didn't have, like, a patron or anything. It had, buy me a coffee, and you could, like, click it. So, what I'm going to do with this story, just because there is a lot of information, and I think it's important to tell about the victims. And I don't want to make this whole story about the bad guys, but it's a big piece of it. Because just there's just so much involved. So, first, let's start with the family. This is the family in 2007. The patriarch of the family is William Pettit, and he goes by Bill, and he is an endocrinologist who does quite well for himself. He is married to Jennifer Hawk Pettit. Bill's 50, Jennifer is 48. They have two daughters, Haley, who's 17, and Michaela, who is 11. They were, I mean, obviously comfortable financially. He's a physician, and they had a really nice house. And they lived in Cheshire, Connecticut. And Dr. Pettit, the dad, he was like one of the top diabetes specialists. So, I mean, he, again, he did very well for himself, but they were very humble people. They didn't have a lot of, they had a nice house, but they didn't have a lot of material possessions. They were very involved in the church. They were very involved in philanthropy and just doing things for the community that people didn't even know that they did. Jennifer is a pediatric nurse, and she actually has multiple sclerosis. But she is still doing her thing, and that's how she and Bill met. So this is this was actually cute. I, the, it was a little piece of a story, but they met when he was a third-year medical student, and she's a nurse. And he had, like, come up to her and was, like, trying to tell her how to do something. And she's like, no, bish. Like, I've been a nurse a long fucking time. I know how to do this shit. And it was it was taking a patient's blood pressure. Oh, gosh. So, like, that's, like, nursing. I mean, like, she could fucking do that, like, while in a coma. Like, yeah. She good, bro. And she, I think she, like, tell, of course, she, they were very, like, proper and yeah religious like her father is a pastor you know like they, yeah. she didn't call him a bitch but in my head she was like this bitch right after he finished medical school they got married and had the girls and i mean like the kids were so pure and so just amazing like after jennifer was diagnosed with ms the oldest daughter haley she started getting people to sponsor her in the Connecticut MS Walk. And she's, like, for seven years she did it and raised over $55,000. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, they, like I said, they were very philanthropic, but it was, like, under the radar. Like, you wouldn't, yeah. you, they didn't broadcast it. Haley wanted to follow in her dad's footsteps. She wanted to be a physician, too. You know, growing up, she always went to the hospital with him while he did rounds and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what she wanted to be. Whereas Michaela, or they called her KK, she wanted to be a chef. And that's what they were doing on July 22nd, 2007. 
Michaela wanted to make dinner for the family, so she and Jennifer went to the grocery store so that they could, you know, buy all, buy all the things for dinner. While they were there, what they didn't know is that there was a man who was trying to cash a check or something like that, and they caught his eye. Oh, gosh. And his name was Joshua Komisarjewski. As soon as he saw them, he was like, hmm, they look rich. You know, he, they just, they just caught his eye. So when they left, he followed them and he followed them all the way to their house. And when they pulled in the driveway, he keeps going, obviously, because he's scoping out to see where they live Mm -hmm. to come back. And he is thinking, hell yeah, it's the biggest house on the street. So I'm going to refer to him as Joshua throughout the rest of the thing because his name, very hard. Well, he and a guy by the name of Stephen Hayes were partners in crime. They had both recently been paroled from jail and were in the same halfway house. And that's how they met. And like this article said, it was a match made in hell. Joshua, who was one that was... He was more of like the he was more of the robber of the two, and he brought Stephen in and was like, "Okay, we're gonna do this. We're a duo now. We're gonna rob all these places." Well, both of them, like I said, had been in prison for a little while, so they were a little rusty with the breaking and entering skills, and so they did a kind of test run on a different house, and it went really well. Joshua was the one that broke in, and Stephen waited outside, was kind of the lookout. Everything went swimmingly. So they decided it was time to do the real deal. And when Joshua saw Jennifer and Michaela, he was like, this is it. This is the house. They were thinking they were going to get cash and jewelry and all these things. And because it had gone so well before, they were like, we're going to be in and out. Nobody's even going to fucking know. So Joshua tells Stephen the plan. And at 7.45 that night, Stephen texts Joshua and says, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. Well, in this scenario, Josh is a little more the fuck boy. And Stephen's more desperate. It, it feels like like this in this text. Because he didn't respond for like an hour. So Stephen texts back and is like, we still on? And Joshua says, yes. Stephen says, soon? And Joshua says, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. Doesn't that just break your heart? Like, he's, like, at his house. Oh, my gosh. Putting his child to bed. And he's, like, making plans with Stephen to go break into this home. Yeah. Stephen replies, dude, the horses want to get loose. So, around 11 o'clock, all the girls go to bed. Michaela gets in bed with her mom. And Haley goes to her room. And Bill is staying up, watching some TV, and he ends up falling asleep on the couch. Now, usually, Joshua was one that he kind of prided himself on being able to break into houses, stay in there for hours, and no one ever be the wiser. But this time, for some reason, I don't know why, He hit Bill over the head with a baseball bat. Holy Hannah. Could you imagine waking up to that? Like, just confused and like, just what the fuck is going on? They tied him up 
took him down to the basement, and then tied him to a pipe. But this is what's so weird. Joshua, like, ended up bringing him some pillows, like, for his head, for him to lean on, because he wanted him to be comfortable. What? Meanwhile, he's been beaten with a bat, so... Okay. Right. Because they didn't just hit him once with the bat. Like, they hit him multiple times. Like, he was Hmm. beaten, like, unrecognizably. And so they tell him, look, we just want the money. Tell us where your safe is. And he's like, I don't have a safe. Because, again, they were not a family that was materialistic and had all these... You know, gold bars and right diamond, all all the things exactly. After Bill tells them there's no safe, they make their way upstairs and they find Jennifer and Michaela in the bed together in the master bedroom. Michaela had fallen asleep while she was reading Harry Potter. Oh gosh, the men quickly tied all three of them up separately and then tied them to their beds with pillowcases over their heads. So at this point, they start ransacking the house, trying to find, you know, money and jewelry and all of that. And they realize there's nothing. Only thing they can find is a checkbook. And in the register of a checkbook, it shows that that account had thousands of dollars in it. And so they were like, fuck this. We are not walking away empty handed. We're going to wait this out. The bank opens at nine and we're going to take Jennifer with us to the bank and we're going to make her withdraw all this fucking money and then we'll get the hell out of Dodge. So they've got some time to kill. They get some beer out of the fridge, drink some beer. Steven ends up going to a gas station and he gets two gallons of gas in gas jugs because they were talking. They're like, well, shit, now our DNA is like everywhere. And so they're like, well, DNA can't survive a fire. Oh, my gosh. False. But they're like, you know, we can burn it down. And, you know, none of our trace evidence will be left. So he goes and does that. Okay, and here's a trigger warning. Uh, Kid stuff. While Stephen is gone to get the gas, Joshua goes into Michaela's room. The 11-year-old. No. And takes pictures of her in different positions with different levels of clothing on. He makes her change clothes. And then not long after that, Stephen gets back and they wait. Finally, when it's 9 a.m., Stephen takes Jennifer to the bank. Jennifer was so calm and collected throughout the the whole ordeal that she was even talking them through it because you know their their adrenaline's up and and they were talking about taking her to the bank and like here just take your checkbook and your license I guess and she's like um I probably should take my purse it's gonna look weird if I don't have it and so Stephen took her to the bank at 9 a.m and when they get there he tells her if you fuck this up I'm going to kill your daughters because they think that Bill is dead in the basement. When she gets to the bank, she walks up to the teller and she tells her what's happening. She stays as calm as she can because she knows that he is watching her 
from the car. Oh my gosh. And he she says, I need fifteen thousand dollars from my account. It has to be in three bundles of five thousand. There are people in my house. She said they have my kids and my husband held for ransom in the house. I need this money. Well, it's a joint account. So the teller's like, your husband has to be here. No. So she's like, I I don't think, the teller didn't think it was a scam. So she's like clearly upset, but trying to be stoic and, you know, all the things. So she has to go get the manager because she's like, I can't do this because they're not here. And so the manager's like, here's the money. As soon as the manager's finished, she runs back into her office, turns out the lights, and calls 911. This is what the bank manager said on the 911 call. She said, she explained to me that her family was being held, and as long as she got the money and got back to the house, everybody would be okay. I just knew from the look on her face and the look in her eyes that she was telling the truth. Her eyes told me, a look from one mom to another mom. Oh my gosh, heartbreaking. And really, that should have been it. It should have gone back to the house, left Jennifer there, taken their $15,000, and hit the road. But that wasn't the case. When Stephen and Jennifer got back, he found out that Joshua had forcibly performed oral sex on Michaela and raped her. He had taken video and pictures on his cell phone. So Joshua allegedly told Stephen... You got to even the score. And by that, he meant Stephen has to rape Jennifer. The timeline of this next little tidbit is a little bit different in different articles, but the majority of them have this. Stephen raped Jennifer to even the score between him and Joshua. Some things say that he strangled her before he raped her, which is the timeline I was talking about is a little bit different, but... A few of the articles talked about when he heard some commotion downstairs, that's when he strangled Jennifer, and that was after the rape. The commotion they heard downstairs was Bill. Bill was still alive, and he could hear Jennifer being raped upstairs. And that's when he got this jolt of adrenaline that helped him break free of the ties, and he crawled his way to the neighbor's to ask for help and for them to call 911. When he got to the neighbor's house, he was unrecognizable because he had been beaten so badly. When Bill got to his neighbor's house, look, this was his neighbor for 18 years. They knew each other. They were friends. Barbecues together, all the things, I think. I don't know. But he didn't even know who Bill was. He says, I didn't recognize him at first. His face was so banged up. It just didn't look like Dr. Pettit. All Bill could choke out was call 911 and the girls. Oh, God, heartbreaking. Joshua and Stephen heard the commotion of Bill getting away. And this is where I was talking about the timeline of the strangulation before the rape versus after the rape. One of what seemed to be the kind of the consensus was that Stephen got so mad when he heard Bill, like, escaping, basically. That's when he strangled Jennifer. Like, okay, fuck, we've got to, like, wrap this shit up. we got to clean up witnesses, you know, all the things. Ugh. 
Then the men, this part's bad. I mean, all of it's bad, but this part's really bad. They argue over which one did it, but by most accounts, it was Stephen, took the gasoline, poured it all throughout the house, including on the girls no. who are alive no. with pillowcases over their face. Uh-uh. They also argue about which one actually struck the match. Oh, my gosh. But... Basically, just as Bill is getting over to the friend's house, saying call 911, the house engulfs in flames. Oh my gosh. This is heart-wrenching. Michaela was still tied to her bed. She had a lot of smoke inhalation that is what killed her, Mm. but she was partially burned alive oh gosh Haley on the other hand was able to break free from the bed was engulfed in flames running for her life before she succumbed to smoke inhalation and died away from her room oh my gosh She had third and fourth degree burns on her feet because she was so engulfed in flames and running to try to save herself. Holy Hannah. That is so sad. So by this time, the house is in flames. The whole family, except Bill, is dead. He's next door, literally unconscious from his injuries. And... Keep in mind, the bank had called the police, so the police are at the house. They have the house surrounded when Joshua and Stephen try to flee in the Pettit family car. The police force a car wreck and immediately arrest Joshua and Stephen. These wackadoos, if they just would have done their one dirty deed... But they couldn't. When they got arrested... Stephen immediately was like, there's three people still in the house. And Joshua was like, I don't know what this is about kind of thing. Oh, gosh. I hate him. Yes. I mean, I hate them both, but. Again, both men were arrested. Bill survived. Lost his whole family. Lost his house. They eventually tore the house down and made it like a garden, memorial garden. For his family. Mm. There's a couple of controversies that surround this case. One is that basically the police got to their house. Like within minutes of them getting back from the bank. Wait, what? Mm -hmm. But it was, I guess, coded for lack of a better word, as a hostage situation. Which it was. And... What they were doing was establishing a perimeter, and this part is kind of word on the street with the locals, is that off the record, the police who were there waiting for permission to like enter and set up the perimeter and all the things said that they could hear the girls screaming inside. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Now, that's hearsay. That's total hearsay. It's people in the community saying that off the record, that's what the police officers said. So, basically, 
the mayor, the city, all the things said, oh, the police did like gave them accommodations. Like they did such a great job. They, you know, Bill's alive and, you know, and it's like, but, but no, you could have avoided Jennifer's rape and the brutal murder of those girls. Jennifer's murder too. But so Jennifer's rape and murder and then the most brutal way to die for that 17 and 11 year old. Here's the other controversy. Both men. Now we're going to talk about the death penalty here and I'm just going to lay the facts out here. Y'all make your own decision, but I'm going to tell you my situational. I'm not going to say global. I don't, nobody gives a fuck about my opinion about the death penalty globally, but in this situation, I'm going to give you my opinion. Both of those men said, we'll plead guilty if you take the death penalty off the table. The DA said, absolutely not. So they had a trial. After they were convicted, before the penalty phase, the state of Connecticut, their like Senate or House, I don't know, I should know more of this shit, stuff like that. I don't, politics are confusing. But anyway, they had voted to abolish the death penalty while they were about to start the sentencing phase. Well, the governor vetoed it. So then they started the sentencing phase. Both men were sentenced to death. So you get these automatic appeals that happen when someone's sentenced to death. And then after all of that, Connecticut repealed the death penalty anyway, and they both got their sentence commuted to life in prison without parole. So that state spent $7 million trying them when their sentence was commuted to life in prison without parole anyway. They offered, they said, we will plead guilty. A couple of things I want to say about that. One, they confessed like right off. Joshua, I wanted to reach into the TV and punch him because that motherfucker, when he was in doing his confession. Was he smug? He called Michaela KK, which no. is her fucking nickname. Uh-uh. Like, even the police were like, KK, and he, like, is that, like, her nickname? And he was like, yeah, that's what her family called her. Like, fuck you. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. That, me- like, that flew all over me. I was like, that piece of shit called that poor child her fucking nickname. Like, you fucking know her. Like, I'm sitting straight up, y'all. <laughs> like, oh, shit. Yes. Oh, shit. Yes. I'm talking, like... Blood boiling, steam coming out of my ears if I was a fucking cartoon. I'd have been red as a hornet. Hornets aren't red, but you get the point. (laughs) Mad as a hornet, red as a something. Oh my God, I was so fucking pissed. But here's the other thing about the death penalty. The family wanted it. So from a state's perspective, I'm like, what a fucking waste of money. And I don't think that it should have come to that. I know that that's what... Bill wanted, and Bill has an organization now that helps families and stuff, and he's even in politics now, and, I mean, fault tooth and nail to the very end for the death penalty, but from a fiscal standpoint, from, like, a state side, like, why would you, one, put that family through that, and two, spend all that money? I know it's not about the money, but... So not only did they put the family through that, the jurors 
were given free counseling after because they had to see the pictures on Joshua's oh phone. Oh, They had to hear all this testimony about what happened from the medical examiner, the state of their bodies. I mean, think about all that you just heard that's so horrible and so traumatizing. And think about being a member of that jury and having to listen to that. And so it's just like all of that could have been avoided. But again, I mean... That, so that my opinion is they shouldn't have tried to get the death penalty. I don't think so. When you've got someone that's offering to plead guilty and to save the family from all of that. But the family wanted the death penalty. So that would be going against the family's wishes. <sighs> but I, <sighs> But how do you put a price on a life, on three lives? I mean, you're right. You're totally right. It's hard. That's hard. I mean, because, again, you're totally right, and you're more, like, death penalty than I am, you know, about, like... Oh, yeah, I'm definitely pro-death penalty. But, like, I just... You're right. It's so hard because the family wanted it. But it's, like, in the end, it was committed to life in prison anyway. So it's, like, the they went through everybody. This, I mean, the family, the attorneys well the state of connecticut did them dirty the but even even the the community went through so much because it was like it never got a conclusion because every single time okay they're convicted oh wait oh wait are we gonna have the death penalty okay we got them convicted with a death penalty you know oh wait now they've abolished it and so all that time while they were fighting it it just is like constantly bringing it up and this community can't heal. Yeah, but it just goes back to me, like, the family wanted that. And so it's like, I don't fucking care about the community because, like, if Bill wanted that and he had to hear his wife be brutally raped and murdered and he had to hear if the police could hear his daughter scream, he could too. You know, like, if I had to do that, mm-mm. Like, I don't fucking care if y'all have to see the pictures, if y'all have to do whatever. Like, this is what I want. And, like, I had to suffer. You too, then. Like, you see what these motherfuckers did. Yeah. Like, you let that happen to your family. You don't want it to happen. Okay. I just think even anything like that would happen to my mom or something. But I would fight all that I could, just like Bill. Like, I I don't fucking care what it costs, what I would have to go through to get that justice that I think they deserve. Well, yes, yes, I hear what you're saying. But also, it's not like it was a a trial of did they do this or not. You know, yeah. it, that wasn't – the trial was basically are there mitigating circumstances to warrant a death penalty kind of thing. So – to me, it feels like the trial wasn't about justice as much as it was about revenge. Because justice is, they were found guilty, they were going to plead guilty, and they were going to go to jail for the rest of their lives. Yeah, but that's what they wanted. That's not justice. If someone says, hey, I just killed your whole fucking family, but I'll plead guilty if I can stay alive the whole You're right. Thing. You're right. You're right. Like, you are totally right. Like, no, no, no. Also, though, because the same people, like, was it um, Israel Keys that was like, yeah, I'll plead guilty if you give me the death penalty. Well, and he did that whole thing where he didn't want his family mm-hmm. to know all of so that. So it's like, why would you give them what they want? Like, if we're not giving what they want with the death penalty, why would we? 
Well, and I will say, like, there was a lot in the trial about how Joshua and Stephen were raised. Stephen had a fairly typical upbringing. He, he tried to downplay his attorney, really, especially in the documentary, really tried to downplay his role and talk about, like, his mental health and all of this. But then his brothers were interviewed, and they were like, no, he is so conniving. He is so manipulative. And they even wrote the judge a letter being like, we'll testify. We'll do whatever you have to do to get them the death penalty. Wow. And then Joshua was adopted at a very young age. And when he was a kid, his parents were also foster parents. And his foster brother raped him repeatedly for years he eventually like the foster brother eventually ended up pleading guilty and they recommended the state like recommended psychological treatment for joshua and his family was like "Mm -mm -mm," because they were like we're gonna pray it away basically right and the documentary talked a lot about how like his religion was anti- homosexuality and all of that and so how difficult it was for him to reconcile what was happening to him with what the teachings of his church were and realizing that no this is abuse this isn't your fault this has nothing to do with homosexuality like you are being abused it is not the same thing yeah and the shame and all of that that went with it and so he had a lot of psychological stuff from childhood that doesn't make it right. And no. I, in, in the documentary, Bill even said like they didn't interview him. They just had clips of him like from interviews, mm-hmm. but he basically said like, I don't give a shit what you went through as a kid. That doesn't mean that you come forcibly perform oral sex and rape my 11 year old daughter. And then, light my house on fire and burn my family alive. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, not that I condone the rapes at all, but they didn't stop there. He didn't stop there, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, so that's not anything to do with that. You went further. And you waited until Stephen left to Mm -hmm. go get the gas, and that's when you did it the first time. And then you waited for him to take Jennifer to the bank before you did it again. So, yeah. And then allegedly you were like, mm, Stephen, we got to even up the score. You need to rape Jennifer. You know, like this yeah. isn't, no, these fuckers. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry you went through that, but that is not pertaining to this at all. Yeah. Like you can't use that as an excuse at all. All with this. Yes. Well, to wrap the story up, it does have a happy ending. Like I said, Bill has really kind of cemented his place in the community as far as an activist. He's in politics now as a representative. And he even remarried and has a son. Oh. So he, I mean, as as much as he can, he's moving on with his life. Her parents got to see justice served. Yeah. I think this, uh, the ending of this definitely brought out your analytical side and my passion. Yeah. Like I'm like people over everything and you're like 
bottom dollar is, you yes. know, and not in a bad way. It's just like how our brains oh, yeah. work. But this is why we work. Yeah. Because you're very much the passionate one, the no holds barred, like go like balls to the walls, all the things, all of the cheesy sayings I can think of. And I'm very much <laughs> like, no, Donna. Yeah. You can't say that. You can't do that on television. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That was such a heavy story. I hope yours is not as heavy. Well, the story I'm doing was suggested by Kayla Newkirk in the Facebook group. And she saw it on the Travel Channel's Haunting in the Heartland and was like, this family has been through some shit. So, of course, I had to go check it out for myself. There's also a movie on Amazon Prime that's free if you're on Prime that I watched, and it's called A Haunting on Dice Road, The Hell House. And it was pretty good. It's by the same guy who does The Haunting in the Heartland. Okay, so picture it. Merrill, Michigan, 1951. Harold and Mabel Pomeraining built the house that they thought would be their family's dream house. Dwayne and Terry were their sons who were born after the house was built, and so far their dreams were becoming a reality. They had the family they always wanted, and it was in the country, so it was quiet. The boys worked on the farm with Harold and his dad. All of that. It was just picture perfect, the 1950s, 1960s, you know what I mean. Classic nuclear family, two kids, two parents, living the dream. But it wouldn't be one of your stories if that was the case. Exactly. I mean, the classic nuclear family is some people's nightmare, but I digress. True. Harold and Mabel lived in the house for a total of 20 years. Dwayne lived there for 19 and Terry for 17. And for most of those years, again, it was idyllic. But in 1974, everything changed. The first thing was banging or pounding. It was one night at like 1 a.m. Everyone was asleep and all of a sudden there was a pounding on the kitchen window. It actually shook it so hard so many times that it shattered the glass and the shards fell into the sink. Harold woke up, grabbed his shotgun and checked to see if anyone was there, make sure his family was safe, you know, all the things. Once he couldn't find anyone on the property, he called the police and filed a report of a prowler on their property. Because, yeah, I mean, like, the window's broken. Who goes straight to, oh, gotta be a ghost, or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. The police investigated, but could not find anything, like footprints outside near the windows, or, like... Anything. Yeah, anything. No damage to the exterior. This continued for a bit, because Harold was adamant that every time he came home from work, the pounding would begin. Well, it came to a point that the chief was like, okay, I'm going to stake out his house and see if he calls. And if he does, I'll be right here to see if someone's on the property and catch them and put an end to this. Well, before long, dispatch reported a complaint about someone banging on the house. And so he shined the spotlight because he was like driving up to it. Shine the spotlight, could not see anyone or anything, and dispatch is like, no, someone's still beating on his house. Like, they can hear it? Yeah. And Harold is 
upset because I mean this is weeks like night after yeah. night after night and so he's like at his wits end yes so the officer pulled into the driveway parked and was getting out to talk to Harold well when he got outside the light that was outside of the house went out but there was some kind of noise with it and the closer he got to it he saw that the lights were not turned off they exploded. Oh, shit. Odd, but he shook it off and, you know, like, oh, that's weird. And he talked to Harold, walked around the property, you know, the whole thing. He didn't see anything. Surprise, surprise. And went back to tell Harold that he didn't find any evidence. When he was saying goodbye, there was a picture that fell straight down off the wall. And he said that when they inspected it, the hook and everything was fine and still intact, and the nail was too. So how did it basically, like, jump off of that but fall straight down? You know, so again, he was like, odd. Mm-hmm. But still, like, no one's here banging on the walls, you know? And they're not thinking it's a ghost. Like, they're all trying to be pragmatic about it. And it's like this sudden onset after however long they've lived in the house. It's not like it's like we moved into this new house. As soon as we moved in, it started feeling weird and right. it was banging. Right. And like I said, this happened night after night. Harold would contact the police. They would check it out, etc. After some time, tensions were definitely high between the family and the police. Harold was very upset that they couldn't find a source and the police were thinking that Harold was wasting their time. But they literally can hear it happening on the dispatch while the guy's like looking, like it's not them doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, this was like six months of pounding chaos and police reports. The boys were crying themselves to sleep because they were scared of all the turmoil going on and all the hostility between the family and the police. And then it wasn't just the noises. The kitchen faucet would turn on by itself, full blast. Then there was a knife that just, like, swooped right out of the knife block. And also, in the documentary on Amazon Prime, when the investigator is telling this to the camera, you hear a loud noise, and you see him startled, and it's because an air vent cover fell to the floor randomly in the kitchen with them. So it was just like, what? You know? You know that was so loud, too. Yeah. There was one time the boys were walking at night, just lollygagging around on the property. And they smelled some smoke. And it was coming from this red barn on their property. So they walked over to it to check it out. And they saw smoke just rolling out of the barn. And then in a matter of seconds, it was all gone, like nothing happened. So they're thinking they're crazy. In the Haunting of Dice Road documentary, Mark, quote unquote, it's not really his name. He wanted to be anonymous. He is a retired detective. He tells a story about when he was 12, his father worked with Harold. And one night after work, Mark's dad came home and was telling the fam around the dinner table about a co-worker of his whose house was having some strange shit 
going on and that his coworker wanted him to come over and see if he can offer some explanation. So Mark, being a 12-year-old boy, is freaking excited and eager. So he accompanies his dad on this journey, and they pull up to the Pomeranian's house, and Harold meets him outside. Mark recalls that there was a Doberman pincher that was beside Harold, and so Mark's dad was, you know, making sure that the dog wasn't aggressive. And Harold said that he was fine, but at one point he had turned a little aggressive, But it was when he heard something outside when the pounding was going on. So he let the dog out and he heard the dog howling like it was being beaten. (gasps) And it's never been the same since. Oh, no. Yeah. But it didn't, you know, like he wasn't like super sad when he was talking about it. So I don't think like the dog was like a zombie dog, you know, but... He definitely wasn't like the guard dog he once was. I know. So sad and chilling when you think about like this unseen force. Dogs can sense stuff and he goes out to protect and. Oh, it like crushes my soul. Yes. Well, then they all went inside and discussed some theories. Harold played some tapes for them where you could hear the pounding. But as the night progressed, there was no activity for them to witness, and Harold seemed to be embarrassed by this, and then angry at whatever it was. You know, like, embarrassed at first, but then like, no, you do this every fucking night, and now when I have someone over here that I feel like could help me, you're not going to do it? So he raised his hands like in a fist and said, come on, show yourself, And then on the side of the kitchen, there they were, bam, 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 the poundings. And they all witnessed it. There were two plates on the wall, and the plates were bouncing, you know, with each pound. You know, when you tell these stories and you hear, like, there was knocking on the wall, there was pounding, and it's like, it seems so benign, but... Because you're so, like, desensitized to these stories. But, like, really and truly, if you think about laying in your bed or sitting on your couch watching TV and something banging on your kitchen window so hard that it broke the glass or just banging on your kitchen window and you not – like, that is terrifying. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many times are we recording and we're like, wait, what was that? You know, and it's like, no, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Especially if, like, Bo or Marley barks at something and we're like, what the fuck was that? Yes. You know? And these people have been dealing with that for over six months now. Then, about ten minutes later, rumbling and rolling and pounding in the ceiling of the kitchen happened. And everyone in the house was accounted for. And again, Mark and his dad were there to witness this. They left pretty soon after and really didn't have any answers for Harold, unfortunately. However, the front door randomly had some pounding for a couple of days with no one ever being there at their house. (gasps) Yeah, and so they took this as a warning and never went back to Harold's house again. Holy shit. Yeah. Did they tell Harold and them that they had that? Like, I don't know. 
like I would want to tell them so that they could be like, look, I mean, I know you're in this alone, but uh, probably shouldn't bring anybody else into it because uh, it's going to follow them home. Probably not just because they were terrified to like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to bring it up. And true. Whatever, you know. On Halloween night, Mabel called the Saginaw County Sheriff's Department and reported pounding on the home. Well, the family didn't know that the cops had the home under surveillance at that time. Oh. So they had two deputies sitting on them. And the deputies watching the home were like, nothing's moving outside the home. Like, we can't see any activity. But, again, she's frantic and reporting this. And, you know, and it's just like, we can't confirm anything. Later, the police came and brought a canine that one of the police had trained himself. And the dog wouldn't go anywhere, like, super close to the house. And when they were going to leave, they had to go closer to the house. And he downright refused. They had to basically manhandle the dog to get him in the car. And when they did, he lay down and was fine. Like, nothing happened, you know? Oh, my God. But he wouldn't do anything near the house. And so it's just like, what the hell, you know? On January 5th, 1975, there was a report that denotes explosive sounds. The night before, they had some police from Lansing spending the night, you know, again, trying to get proof, trying to see what's up. Well, when they left, they were relieved by the Saginaw Sheriff's Department. Well, there were three deputies there, I think, at that time, and they were all present in the home, and they documented 13 blasts occurring in a nearly two-hour period from 1.50 to 3.34 p.m., and it really was like explosives. So it wasn't just pounding anymore. These were completely different sounds. There was one officer who was trying to get a statement while the explosives were going off and all of that. Back at the station, he was like, look, I don't want to go back on that property. Like, I'm not going back because I felt something pushing back on my chest. It was heavy on my chest and, like, I'm not messing with it. You know, like, uh -uh, uh-uh, mm-mm. And he heard the explosives and, like, what the hell is going on? And then on January 21st, 1975, there was a story that came out Front page of the Saginaw News. Deputies who had spent the night in the house, they told the reporter that they heard the first name of the owner, Harold, come down from quote-unquote somewhere. And the article also had statements from police that said even with the gas, electricity, everything you can think of to make noise turned off, the sounds continued. So, you know, they tried to debunk everything, but they persisted. Well, Harold was pissed about this because no one contacted him about this article. And he didn't give any consent for his information to be given out, you know. And it's not like, hey, Harold, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, it's not all of that was given out, but still 
it was a very small town and everyone knew, but like, so you're saying all of this weird stuff is happening. You know, it's just like an invasion of his privacy mm-hmm. and like, you're the police. You're supposed to be protecting me. You can't figure out what's wrong with my house, but you're going to go talk to the press about it. Right. There's another record of an interview that was conducted by the Michigan State Police Fire Marshal. And this is because while the Pomeranian family were getting ready for church for Ash Wednesday, they started to smell smoke. And when they went searching for the source, they found a roll of toilet paper that had caught fire in the bathroom. It was on the holder, normal. It was smoking so bad that it began to fill the bathroom and bellow out into the hall from just that toilet paper. The police wanted to administer lie detector tests to one of the sons, Dwayne, but since he suffered from epilepsy and was on, quote-unquote, large amounts of medication, they decided against it, that it would be inconclusive. Well, then there's a continuation of the report where the fire marshal said that the roll of tissue rolled in a normal fashion would not be able to get sufficient oxygen to produce enough heat to sustain burning, calling it, quote-unquote, next to humanly impossible for that fire to happen. Damn. Also, if it was, like, burning that much and that hot and it was creating that much smoke, like, how did it not catch, like, the drywall behind it on fire? Yeah. Well, they tested for fire accelerants. There was nothing. No foul play. No burning on the wall. Like, nothing. It was just the toilet paper. And like you said, how is it not spreading to anything that it's touching? Mm Mm-hmm. The Saginaw County Sheriff's Department was baffled. The Michigan State Police couldn't figure anything out. They had people from different universities, you know, come to research different things. They had turned to their pastor. And then when he came and blessed the house, it got worse, you know. And so then Harold reached out to a Catholic priest He came, and again, it got worse, you know, and so no one could say what it was, do anything to help the family, and do nothing. So a year later, the case was closed after a fire forced the Pomeranian family to move out. It was on Halloween night again in 1975. There was a back room that was on fire, like, spontaneously and they had all of their family memorabilia like pictures children's paintings all of that and so a lot of stuff that would accelerate the fire Mm -hmm. well one of the firemen wanted to get up to the attic to see if they could try to put the fire out that way and so the assistant fire chief got the attic ladder Got the attic door open, but when he went up the rungs, he said it was like someone or something was pushing him back and he could not move forward into the attic. And I'm not sure all of the details, but Dwayne almost died in the fire. 
because the firemen arrived at like 20, 25 minutes. You know, that was their response time. And he was already turning blue. But I don't know why. And like, I couldn't figure out, like no one went into detail. And this was on Haunting in the Heartland. And Dwayne heard his brother giving this interview. And he was like, don't speak of it. You know, and he was like, how would you like it if you almost died? And now you're having to, you know, like, yeah, speak about this. Like, don't do it. He was like, that's work of Satan, you know. And so, like, they stopped talking about it. And so I was like, damn it, Dwayne. Right. Like, I need to know more. So I don't know. I don't know any about that. But, like, Dwayne was, like, targeted the most with all of this. The new owners, Luann Larson and her husband, bought the house 39 years ago, right after, and they did not have the same experiences. Luann grew up in Merrill, so she knew the history of the house, and she said that, you know, she was like, it's not haunted. You know, it's it's fine. I don't get a bad feeling. You know, it's fine. There was one time that Luann could not locate the handicap placard that was on the table placed by her husband when he got home. Where did they find it? In her glove compartment. Mysterious, but not otherworldly. So, you know, mm-hmm. like she just said, mm, that was something kind of strange, but nothing like what the previous owners had said. So, you know, like... Yeah. Tomato, tomato. It's like he might have just put it there and forgotten. forgotten. And they have two daughters. So one of them could have saw it and been like, oh, I'll put that in mama's car, you know? Right. However, there was this one moment where their antique radio started to crackle. Might not seem weird or eerie, but here's the thing. It wasn't plugged in. Not supposed to do that. Right. And also their daughters, who were adults at this time, they heard some pounding when Stephen, the guy who was doing the documentaries, when he was investigating, but they hadn't heard it before, really. So he could have been bringing it up, you know, like, who knows? But, like, it's not like the house was targeting this new family like it was the Pomeranians. One other thing, when they were investigating the barn on the documentary on Amazon, there were footsteps above them in the hayloft, and you could see the dust and debris falling around them with each step, but nothing's up there. And they couldn't, like, I mean, it was, like, old and decrepit, so you can't, like, go up there, but, like, What's up there? Well, I was going to say, if they can't go up there, then nobody else can. So what was it? Yeah. Okay. So there is a theory, and I just want to put it out there. The guy who did the documentary, the guy who did the documentary and the show, Steve Shippey, he believes that the haunting was caused by a neighbor who was allegedly a witch. Ooh. She had approached Harold multiple times to buy his home. And he was like, you have a home right across the street. Like, what the hell? Why you want this one? Yeah. And so he denied her 
repeatedly. Well, finally, it came to, you know, the kind of fight where he said some choice words and all of that. And so Harold was like, that could have been the time that she was like, I'll show you. On the Amazon documentary, they interviewed some of the neighbors and like people in Merrill and they said that, you know, like allegedly she was a witch, you know, she would have, she didn't do anything to dispel the rumors. Oh, look at you. A little pun. <laughs> I didn't even get it. People said that she had weird markings all over her house and, you know, just occultish things. And so they were like, hmm. And even one of the firemen said that, you know, they had some run-ins where she was doing something and they had to be called because of some, like, occurrence that happened. You know, and so he's like, she could be a witch you know, like, yeah. who knows? Again, it's a small town. Right. They don't, you know, like, again, who Rumors knows? flying, all the things. I mean, I feel like, don't they know her name? Can't we interview her? What's happening? Well, Steve said he does know her name, but he has not interviewed her. And I don't know if she has denied it or what. Well, Dwayne had his own experience with her. Where she invited him over to her house. And he said that, you know, he wasn't feeling well and all of that. And he can't really remember everything. But that, you know, she did have some weird symbols and stuff like that. But he remembers that she took a piece of his hair. What? Yeah. And shortly after is when he had his first grandma seizure. So... I don't know if they're trying to blame his epilepsy on her as well. I, You know, I don't know. But it's also like it ties in with it all of why he was targeted then. But he also could have had some sort of like focal seizure while he was there. Mm-hmm. And that didn't really happen. But he was like, again, having a focal seizure that's not this grand mal seizure. And it just, he just feels like that's what happened, but it's not really what happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. Convenient. Yes. I mean, if this person is still alive, I feel like it wouldn't be hard to prove they're like, quote unquote, a witch. Like, do they practice the occult? Wouldn't be that hard to prove. Right. Well, there's also another theory. And people say that Dice Road is the most haunted road in the state of Michigan. The Iva General Store, Dice Road Cemetery, and the Pomeranian House all reside on this straight stretch of road. Well, back before it was Merrill, it was Iva. And Iva was, you know, a tiny town. Like, the, I think the general store, the Iva General Store, 
was there, it turned into their post office. Mm -hmm. And the postman was like, look, you have to name the town or I can't deliver mail to you anymore. And so the guy was like, I think he named it after his mom, was like Iva, you know, and that's how it came to be. Like, you know, just a small town thing. Well, they got hit with the smallpox plague. And again, it's a small town. So instead of getting help, they were like, you know, we can do this ourselves. We can, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, they couldn't. And so they either forcibly quarantined people by boarding them up in their house and not <gasps> letting them leave. And so those people died. died. Yeah. And a terrible, slow, painful death. Or they were boarded up. And at one point they were like, the only way we can get rid of this is to burn everything down and start again. And so they did. And so some of those people could have died alive in the fire, which is weird because I did not know that's where yours was going. I know. When you were talking about the cool. fire in the house, I was like, what is with all this fucking fire this episode? Yeah. Synchronicity. Their house is on property that's just a little ways down from where Iva's main quarters were. You know, it's all on that same street. Right. So it's like. Oh, and like all of the explosives, the fire starting, the smoke that comes out of it, like it, it comes with that. And it's like all of these souls that were trapped there and are beating on the wall to get out. Could be. Yeah. Like, you know, and so it's like, oh, shit, that makes more sense than the other thing. However, the neighbor thing makes more sense to only be targeting that family and not the current owners because they really don't have anything going on, mm -hmm. you know? On the Amazon documentary, he brought in a psychic to, you know, walk around, see what she had going on. And she said that she felt like someone had targeted the family. Like it was only meant for them. And so the current owners probably didn't, have really anything because it wasn't there for them. It's still in the house, but it's not like, like it's above my pay grade. You know, like y'all are right. It's okay. Like I'm resting, you know, but she said, if you brought one of the family members back, it could trigger it to start again. I don't know. I feel like both of these theories could intersect, but also it could be a poltergeist mm -hmm. since it was targeting Dwayne. Dwayne, a young guy going through, you know, teenage years. Trauma. He had, he had epilepsy. So, you know, vulnerable. Then angsty like, from teenager yes. with the trauma of a, like, seizure disorder. Mm-hmm. Like, who knows? But after the Pomeranians left the house, they didn't have any more trouble. But again, like, who knows? It's like chicken and egg and... Mm -hmm. <gasps> I just want to know all these answers. Well, there is one thing we can learn. Be nice to fucking people, and then you won't get a fucking curse. True. I just hate when there's not an answer. Like, again, your story, we have no idea. Not an answer. But even, like, with my story, like, there's not an answer of which is the right decision. Like, 
the death penalty versus life in prison as far as what the prosecution should have sought. Yeah. Because, again, we could sit here and argue, like, both sides of my story and all the different theories in your story. And it's like, which is right? Beats me. Which is why we're just lowly podcasters that talk about it. Well, y'all tell us what y'all think. Because we don't fucking know. But what we do know, y'all should remember. Creep it real. And and don't don't get scared. scared.